Amen. And with that, you can open in your Bibles tonight to the book of Romans, chapter 5. And if you need a Bible, the ushers will be walking through the aisles and they will drop one off in your lap if you need. Romans chapter 5. So Monday morning, I was driving into work with uh, another gentleman. We've been kind of carpooling from one of the parking rides. And and he began to talk to me about a a TV program that he had been watching over the weekend. Um, uh, Apparently, there was this Hindu philosopher slash priest that uh, was being interviewed about some of the things that he was contemplating and meditating and and, and he was telling me that this guy began to uh, enumerate and elaborate on all of the deep and hidden mysteries of the number 40. And so I'm sitting there and I'm listening to him tell me these things. And, and he's telling me everything that this guy had, had come up with about the number 40 as he sat in his lotus position and contemplated his navel. And uh, he said that there, that there are 40 weeks in, you know, a, a, a full-term pregnancy. That there are 40 um, hours in a regular work week. That, uh, that, that it was 40 days and 40 nights that Noah was on the ark during the flood. That it was 40 days and 40 nights that Jesus was fasting in the desert. That, uh, that the temperature it equals out between Celsius and Fahrenheit at minus 40. That at minus 40, Celsius and Fahrenheit are identical. And, uh, and that, the, that if you want to know what the temperature is outside, then all you have to do is listen for the crickets count how many times they chirp in 14 seconds and then add 40 and it's well, always the temperature you know and it's pretty scientific that it's you know kind of always comes out that way and so he's telling me all these wondrous things about the number 40 that he had heard uh on tv and so as he finished i said okay well what's the point point?" and he said uh what do you mean and I said, well, what's the point? I mean, what, what, what's supposed to change about my life now that I know all of these incredible, you know, mis- mysteries about the number 40? And he just said, nothing. It's just great. It's, you know, it's nice stuff that we learn about the, the number 40. It's very significant for some reason. So I said, well, why are you telling me this? You know, it doesn't make any sense. Uh, apparently, this philosopher, this Hindu priest has spent some great deal of time contemplating and meditating and unraveling the ancient mysteries of the number 40, and even gets TV time to tell us all of these wonderful discoveries. The problem is, it means absolutely nothing. Nobody cares at the end of the day. It doesn't further any progress of man. It doesn't better anybody's lives. It's nothing for nothing. Well, in our study of the book of Romans thus far. The Apostle Paul has taken us through the mysteries of creation. He's taken us through the depths of moral consciousness, beyond the scope of Hebrew customs, and through the lens of ancient scripture, to bring us to a conclusive end that man is at enmity with God, And that he is justified or reconciled to God, not by the works of the law that we do, but by faith in what he did in sending his son to the cross to die for our sins. And he's gone to great lengths to make this point to us. He's reached way back into the foundations of the world to come to this one conclusion that man is justified by faith and reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. And the question that we might be asking at this point, as Paul brings us to this conclusion, is what's the point? Well, why are you telling us this, Paul? Well, what does it mean to me? What changes about my existence now that I know these things about ancient scripture and God's creation and moral conscience and Hebrew custom? What does it have to do with me? How does it affect my life? So as we come into chapter 5... Unlike the Hindu philosopher with his fun facts about the number 40, 
The Apostle Paul is going to tell us what this means. What's the implication? What are the results now of this justification that we've received by the power of the blood of Jesus Christ? Why does it matter that we are justified by faith? And so he begins right in the beginning there of chapter 5 by saying, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The first mark of this justification, the first benefit that we have now that we've been reconciled to God, is that we have peace with God through Jesus Christ, he tells us. From the opening chapter of the book of Romans, even until now, Paul has cited the creation around us, the conscience within us, and the scripture spoken to us as evidence that the relationship between man and Almighty God is broken. Now, we don't have to look too far into any of those things to realize that that's true for ourselves. We're all constant observers of the chaotic state of man's political systems. We see the upheaval that's going on geopolitically. We see the moral dysfunction in human behavior that's taking place throughout all of the cultures and societies of the world. That something is wrong. We understand the perplexity and the chaos that's going on in nature itself. As you see that there's this constant conflict and this constant chaos within the systems of the world. In fact, the very function of the planet's natural systems is unsteady. It's unstable. Even now, a hurricane is slamming into the coast of Texas. And you just look at it from a distance and you say, something is wrong. This is God's creation, and he's a God of order and a God of peace. And yet, as we look around the world, there's chaos. Why? Because there's a broken relationship between the world that God created and God himself. Something's wrong. Well, the Bible concurs with the point that Paul is making. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, Paul describes this broken relationship. He says, And you hath he quickened who are dead in trespasses and sins. That your previous state prior to coming to Jesus Christ is that you were dead in your trespasses and your sins. Wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, another name for Satan, that you were walking in Satan's path. The spirit that now works in the children of disobedience among whom also we all had our conversation or lifestyle in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. That man in his natural state is a child of wrath, separated from God, lost, dead in trespasses and in sins. And then over in verse 11, he goes further in the same chapter, Ephesians 2, verse 11. He says, wherefore, remember that you being in time past Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time you were without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That man in his natural state is the enemy of God until something happens, something is done to reconcile that broken relationship. That there's enmity between man and God. Have you ever had an enemy on the human plane? Uh, another person, perhaps someone that shouldn't be your enemy, maybe a family member or a friend or a neighbor, and something happens and there's a rift, a break in the relationship, and sometimes a long period of time can go by without any communication, and that relationship just severs even further, and the, the ties get even colder, and bitterness can even creep in, and, and distance grows between you, and, and there's this broken relationship that you have between people. 
And, and nothing can change that as that, that thing just kind of separates like, like common ends of a magnet. They just push apart from each other. And nothing will fix that relationship until one of the two parties initiates something. Until one of those two parties makes a conscious effort to try to reach out and perhaps retie that thing that was once severed. Somebody has to initiate the reconciliation process. It always requires an initiator. If you skip down back in Romans chapter 5 to verse 6, Paul describes how man's relationship was reconciled to God. How this peace that we now have with God came to happen. Romans 5 verse 6, it says, For when we were yet without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love towards us. in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That we were separated from God. That we were children of wrath. That we were walking in the paths of Satan according to the lusts of our flesh. And that we weren't looking for God and we weren't interested in God. And it was in that condition when we were lost and without strength in the world. That God initiated the reconciliation process. That there was nothing that we deserved. Nothing that made him want to do it. And the price was high. It required the death of his son. The shedding of innocent blood. And yet God did it. And the only reason that can be deduced that God was willing to initiate that reconciliation process was because of the great love wherewith he loved us. Verse 8, but God commendeth his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Nothing we could do, nothing we deserved, nothing God would benefit. And yet because of his great love, he initiated the reconciliation process. And not only initiated it, but he completed it. He did it all by himself, opening the door for us to come back into fellowship with him. Well, what caused the breach in the relationship to begin with? What caused this separation? Because we understand that if you have a conflict on a human-to-human level, there's always an event that initiates the separation, an argument, a disagreement, a conflict, a bad business deal. A family breakup. Something happens that initiates those things. So what initiated the break in the relationship between man and God? Well, he describes that in verse 12 and onward. And don't worry, we're going to fill in the blanks. I know I'm bouncing around a little bit. But he describes what happened. Why did reconciliation need to be accomplished? He describes it. He says, wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin... And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that is to come. Now, attention for one second. This section of scripture is extremely plain. It's very simple, but yet it kind of takes some untying in the language in your mind. So I'm just going to ask you to tune in carefully. Pay attention. If you've kind of shut me off and you're thinking about something else for a minute, come back and, and hear this part of the study and understand the point that Paul is making here because it will help you hugely in understanding what's taken place in your life And also it'll help you to understand how to share with other people why it is that they're going through their struggles in their rift, in their relationship with God. He he begins this, this description of this rift by saying that there was a problem. There was something that happened long ago between the first man that God made, Adam. When there was only one, there was a relationship between the two. They walked together in the cool of the day. There was open fellowship, open communion. There was no separation at all. Adam could sense the presence of God. He had open access. It was, it was as if God was right there walking with him constantly. And yet something happened. God gave one command. He said, in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. 
And Adam, you know the story, he ate from the fruit and there was a separation. Immediately, Adam became conscious of himself. He realized that he was naked and had to cover himself. When God came to fellowship with Adam, it says that Adam hid himself. He withdrew. There was separation. He was embarrassed. He was ashamed. The relationship had been broken. And God spoke to Adam and he said, everything's going to change now because you did this thing. In the sweat of your brow, you'll till the soil. And, and he laid out this, the conditions of what life would be like for man now that that fellowship was broken, now that that sin, that disobedience, that lack of honor to God, once that had happened, the curse entered in. And so Paul says that by one man, back in verse 12, sin entered into the world. Now catch this. Because when he says sin entered into the world, he wasn't talking, he's not talking about the act of sinning. You know, like you would go and do something sinful. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that sin entered the world. Not an action, but a condition. That the condition of sin entered into the life of man. That just like nobody does cancer. You don't do cancer. You get cancer. It's, it's not an act that you do. It's a condition that you have. And Paul is saying sin is so much deeper than just something that you do, but rather it's a condition that's alive within you. And it's that condition, the darkness of sin, alive in the heart of man that separates him from a holy God. That sin entered into the world through Adam and that the result of that was that death also came by sin. And so, because Adam, the first man, sinned, and sin entered into him, and death was placed upon him, so also now it says that death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. By the way, did you know that that's the reason why you sin? The act of sin? The reason why you sin is because sin is in you. It's a condition that you have. If you were not a sinner, then you would not sin. And the reason why you sin is because you are a? Good. See, we understand. It's a condition that we have. It's a condition that's alive in the heart of man. I'm so grateful that there's coming a day, and it says that the Lord is going to catch us up. That in the twinkling of an eye, we're going to be changed, the Bible said. And that this corruption is going to put on incorruption. This mortal is going to put on immortality and death is going to be swallowed up in victory. In one instant, we're going to be transformed and we're no longer going to have the condition of sin. So that thing that you struggle with, that, that burdens you, that calls out to you, that screams in temptation to you, in one moment, that's going to be gone. And it'll be as though that, that lust and that craving never existed within you at all. As we're set free, as the Lord breaks the bond of sin, and it's removed from us completely as we're in his presence forever. I'm so grateful that that's going to happen. But in the meantime, death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. And then he goes on in verse 13, and notice it's in parentheses because he's kind of helping us understand something. He says, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses. Pause for a second. See, if you know anything about Bible chronology, you'll realize that Adam chronologically comes before Moses, right? Everybody agree? You don't have to be like, I don't know about that. I'm going to have to check you on. No, no, it's true. Adam came first, but yet the law didn't come until Moses. Several hundred years after Adam, there was no law. And he says that the act of sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, sin existed, and the reason we know it is because there was death. That death is the evidence that sin was in the world even before the law. And the purpose of the law was to magnify the problem of sin. Without the law, you know how they do those, those dye tests where they'll test for a certain chemical in, in, a, in another solution, and they'll put a chemical in, and if the other chemical is present, it'll turn a color? That's what the law was. The law was a litmus test. It was something that once it was given, it showed that we had sin. Before that, the only evidence was death. There was no law, so no one would know. Do you understand? 
Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him which is to come. Now follow me here, because this is where Paul's going. He's saying that just like Adam was the representative of those that would come after him, that there's going to be another representative that's going to represent those that come after him. That's why he says that Adam was a figure of him that was to come. That that something happened with Adam and his descendants that's going to be replicated in an opposite manner. What? What, Paul? Tell us. Verse 15. He says, not as the offense, the sin of Adam, so also is the free gift. What's the free gift? That comes from Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Jesus is called the last Adam. Adam was the first Adam. He sinned. He dropped the ball. But Jesus is the last Adam. Adam sinned and passed death upon all men. But Jesus Christ lived righteously and died for sin. And thus, he purchased a get-out-of-hell free card. And that's the free gift he's talking about. For if through the offense of one, many be dead... Adam, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, has abounded unto many. And not as it was by the one that sinned, death, that came through Adam, so is the free gift, the life that comes through Christ. For the judgment was by one, Adam, to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. That comes through Jesus Christ. For if by one man's offense, that's Adam and his sin, death reigned by one, we all died because of Adam, we're all descendants of Adam, much more, they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, do you understand the progression, the flow? That those that were born after the manner of Adam, all inherit sin, and therefore were enemies of God, and the result of that is death, both spiritually and physically. We die. But on the other side, Jesus Christ, the last Adam, he died. He lived righteously. He fulfilled the law completely. And yet, even though he didn't deserve to die, he died. For who? You and I. He took our place on that cross. He was judged for our transgression, for our sin. He bore the death that Adam passed upon us, upon himself. And now he passes on to whoever will receive it, the gift of life. Do you understand? If you're born once after Adam, you die. But if you're born twice, you're born again. You receive Jesus Christ and the sacrifice and the gift that he offers, then you will obtain, inherit eternal life. Somebody said one time, if you're born once, you die twice. Because you not only die physically, but you die spiritually and you spend eternity separated from God. But if you're born twice, you're born physically and then you're born again in Jesus Christ, then you only die once. Because you die physically, but then you will live eternally. And for us, I believe we're going to be raptured. We don't even have to die once. It's a great deal. You get the two for one kind of a thing. You know, we don't even have to experience, you know. But do you understand what's happening here? He says, therefore, verse 18, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. That's Adam. Even so, by the righteousness of one, Jesus Christ, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as you're like, Paul, we get it. But he goes on. Verse 19. For as by one man's disobedience, Adam and his sin, many were made sinners. So by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. He contrasts the sin of Adam and its effects with the gift of Christ and its effect. And he says that Adam's sin led to death and condemnation, 
but that Jesus' sacrifice led to life and justification. And thus, the relationship that was broken between Adam and God, between mankind and Almighty God in heaven, can now be reconciled. That God has initiated and He has made a way wherein man can now be reconciled and brought back into a relationship with Him. And Paul says, as we began back in chapter 5, verse 1, therefore, being justified by faith, we now have peace with God. He says that the war is over. That there's no longer a rift between you and God if you have come to Him. If you've accepted Christ as your Savior, you are at peace with God. He looks at you as though you are Jesus' Son because you've obtained that righteousness, not by your works, but by his free gift and the grace that he has given to you. It's the gift of his grace. The war is over. The fear is gone of God's condemnation, of God's judgment, of God's wrath upon your life. Because peace has been purchased at the hands of Jesus Christ. And it is not based upon you. It's not based upon your performance. It's not based upon your maintenance. It's not based upon anything that you have done. But he clearly declares that while we were yet without strength, Christ died for us. And that he commends his love towards us. And that while we were yet sinners, at our worst point, the enemies of God, Christ died for us. And so therefore, it has nothing to do with me, either in the initiation of it or in the maintaining of it. It's all his work. See, if it has anything to do with me, then peace with God will be come and go. It will be on and off. It will be here and there a little. Because, well, if I'm praying, if I'm reading, if I'm doing what I'm supposed to do, then I have peace with God. But if I'm sleeping in, if I'm getting tired, if I'm stumbling over certain things, oh boy, I'm just waiting for him to drive me off into outer darkness. But no, that's not the way it is. He says, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. The result of our being saved by grace through Christ, is that we have peace. What an incredible truth. The thing that we hunger for the most, the thing that the deepest longing within the heart of man is to be reconciled to God, whether man knows it or not. And Jesus has purchased it for us. And if you're here tonight saved, you have peace with God. You have a treasure laid to your account that the world dreams of having. Yet it's theirs for the taking and they just don't realize it. They don't grasp it. So we have peace. The second thing that we have, because we've been justified, is that we have access to God. He says, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also, verse 2, we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We have access to God. This past weekend, I was mowing our lawn. And we have this old John Deere tractor that pretty much you could uh, drive over a field of rocks and nothing's going to stop this thing. And so I don't stop. I just drive over whatever's there. And usually I wait so long that the grass is big enough I can't see what I'm really mowing over anyways. And and so there was this five-foot section of rope that was kind of like left from pulling down trees and everything. And so I, I just roll right over this rope. And sure enough, it gets tangled up in the blades, these three blades underneath that spin, you know. And so the blades, you hear them stop, and it's there. And I go, oh, man, you know. So, so I shut it down, and my back's kind of hurting me a little bit. So I hobble down, and I get down on the ground. And, and you know, I kind of got to get under there, and I'm untangling this thing. And as I'm untangling this rope, I, I, I can't help but notice that there were thousands, multiplied thousands of various different forms of bugs, ants, spiders, beetles, ladybugs, ticks, snakes, you know, dinosaurs. I mean, there was just teeming stuff going back and forth across the section that I was mowing. And consequently, they start crawling up my legs and up my arms, you know, and I'm watching this whole thing and I'm shaking them off, you know, and, and, I'm, and I'm seeing all this happen as I'm wrestling with the thing. And I, and I just started to watch them, you know, and they were like crossing. There was like this whole city of commerce and dealings and business going on, you know, all these different races of bugs and creatures. And, and it was fascinating to watch this whole thing that was going on the whole time you know you can see that they're sitting there watching here comes the lawnmower hurricane you know it's coming through and you know and they, they're just guarding trying to get out of the way in this whole thing there was this whole thing going on and it got me thinking 
I started to think, you know, here's this whole system, these thousands and thousands of creatures that are having this whole interaction, this whole life, this whole system without me even realizing it. And I began to think about what's going on in the heavenly realm, in the angelic realm, the, the, the realm that we can't see, that the Bible talks about that it exists. The Bible likens the angels unto the stars in the heaven, that they are innumerable in multitude. That you couldn't number the host of them. That that's how many of these angels there are. Both good and bad. That there are good angels and bad angels. And that they're innumerable. And there's this whole spiritual system that's going on right in our midst that we can't see. That we can't understand. Jacob was there lying. And he was using the sand as his bed and a rock as his pillow. And he didn't know what the future held for him. And as he was laying there contemplating his past, present, and future, God opened his eyes. And he saw a ladder that extended from earth all the way to heaven. And he saw the angels of God ascending and descending upon it. And he said with his mouth, he said, wow, the Lord is in this place. And I didn't even know it. There was this whole thing going on right right here the whole time. And I didn't even realize that it was happening, that it was going on. We see a similar scene a few hundred years later into the history of Israel. When Elisha was there with his servant and there was a plot out to take his life. And the army of, you know, Ben-Hadad, the Syrian king, had come in and they were going to take out Elisha. And there he was encamped in the valley with his servant in a tent. They had no army. They had no weapons. They had no defense. And as they were there and they were surrounded by this army, Gehazi, the servant, goes out and he sees that they're surrounded by this vast military, you know, multitude. And he goes back in and he shakes Elisha awake and he says, Elisha, we're toast, we're dead meat, they're all around us. And Elisha says, go back to sleep and relax. No, no, you don't understand, get out here and see. And and he didn't go out, he just said, Lord, open his eyes. And he said, now go outside and look again. And the servant went out, and this time, as he looked at the army that was surrounding them, that seemed so insurmountable, so huge, so powerful, that behind them and all throughout the mountains and the valley, it says that it was filled with angels and chariots of fire. They were there the whole time, but he couldn't see them. He didn't know what was going on. And immediately his confidence was bolstered as he realized that they that be with us are more than they which be with them. As he realized this thing was going on in the unseen realm. When Daniel the prophet was fasting and praying and seeking the Lord, it says that he was visited by an angel who spoke to him and said, when you began to pray three weeks ago, the Lord sent me to give you an answer, but I was withstood by the prince of Persia. For three weeks I was hindered from getting to you with this message. But finally, Michael, the prince, Michael, the archangel came in and and he helped me. And so here I am to give you this message. And he describes this battle that was going on between the forces of good and the forces of evil in the unseen heavenly realm. And I can't imagine what's even going on in this room right here tonight. With all the various different types of people, the word of God is being taught. And you can be certain that there's a conflict going on spiritually. There's a conflict going on within the hearts of some of you as you're here listening, wrestling with the truth and the error of these things. There's stuff going on that you can't understand or comprehend. There's this whole spiritual realm that's existing and it's real, right in in our midst. And yet the Bible says that for all of that, that God created all of it. Colossians chapter 1 verse 16 says that by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. That he made that innumerable host of angels, that multitude of heavenly beings. Not only did he create them, but he also, and catch this, he also rules over them. He's also the one who governs and dictates all of the actions and activities that they do. It says in Ephesians 1, 
verses 21 and 22, that God is far above, or Christ is far above all principalities and powers. And whenever you read that in the Bible about principalities and powers, it's talking about the spiritual strongholds and the spiritual you know, powers that are over areas and over lives, the invisible heavenly realms. It says he's far above them. Power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. And hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head of all things to the church. That he created this whole unseen realm, but that he also controls it, that he orchestrates it like a grand symphony. And he's aware of everything that's going on at any given time, at any given way. Now, if only you can even begin to imagine the enormity of the implications of that. Just how huge and how grand of a spectrum that is. I was thinking about Steve Jobs. You know, you think you hear all this stuff about the new iPhone and Apple, the iPad, and you know, all this crazy stuff that's coming out of Apple. And and I was thinking about Steve Jobs, who's the CEO, the chief executive officer, the head honcho there at Apple uh, Computers. They have 34,300 full-time employees. They have 273 retail stores worldwide. The value of the company, you know, that the money that, that kind of goes through their hands is $210 billion. I mean, it's absolutely enormous to think about it. And what would it be like for you to just kind of go and knock on Steve Jobs' uh, door and go hang out with him and talk to him about his daily responsibilities? 34,300 full-time employees. Do you think he knows what their names are? Do you think he knows what they're doing? Do you think he has the capacity to be able to orchestrate and control everything that's going on within the company? You think, wow, how huge is a guy like that? Or the guy who runs Google, you know, slightly smaller, 20,621 employees, $123 billion. You know, this whole thing that's going on. Well, now you have God. And the Bible says that he made, formed, commissioned, and empowered every angel, both good and bad, and that he knows them all by name. That an innumerable multitude of angels and conflicts God is in control of. That he's aware of and the author of every deed, every thought, every word, every conflict, every battle, every need, and the outcome of every situation in heaven and earth is all in his hand. And he's in control of all of it. He dictates it. That he knows the name, the frame, the thoughts, the plans and desires, the number of hairs upon the head, the number of breaths and the number of heartbeats, and the todays and tomorrows of every man, woman, and child that has ever lived, not just today, but all the way from the beginning since Adam, estimated between somewhere between 20 and 50 billion souls. God knows every detail of every life of every day. He holds it all within his hand. And all at once, he's conducting the circumstances and the events of all of this, like this great grand symphony. And yet he invites you and I to come into his presence freely. That he'll give us his undivided, fixed attention. And that he'll answer our requests and meet all of our needs as though we're the only thing that exists in all the universe. That we have access to the God of heaven. Not only that, but just think about what it would be like to be in the full steam of controlling all of that and yet to step down and become part of the creation himself and to know that the only way that man can be redeemed to him is for him to set aside his position and to hang and die on a cross and to spill his blood in order to bring the people back to himself. And yet in the midst of all that was going on between heaven and earth, he stepped down and he did that for you and I. And now he controls every detail of our lives and he invites us in. He says, therefore, being justified by faith, not only do you have peace with me, but you have access to me. You have access to come into my presence and experience my goodness and my blessing upon your life. He doesn't say, you know what? I'm very busy today. There's this whole thing going on over Babylon. So I'm going to tell my secretary and you just talk to her. Or, I have this whole host of prayer-answering angels. You know, their whole thing. I've just designed this whole segment of my creation that's just going to hear prayer and answer it because I've got a lot going on right now. In fact, God absolutely forbids that we go to anybody else other than Him. He doesn't allow us to go to angels. He doesn't allow us to go to saints, those that have died before us. He doesn't allow us to go to angels or anybody else. He says, no, you come unto me 
when you are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I'm inviting you, and I'm telling you that the only refuge that you have is to come to me, directly to me, and we have access to do that. I believe that the least enjoined activity in the Christian church today, including this one right here, us sitting here, is the access that we have to God through prayer. It's the least enjoined, least experienced thing amongst Christians in the world today. If only you knew what God has available for you and what God wants to do in your life, what he's willing to do, if only you will ask. Jesus said, ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened unto you. Jesus said, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit or good gifts to those that ask? He tells us to ask. And James tells us that you have not because you ask not. And yet, how little do we take advantage of the access that we have to God in light of how huge he is and all that's at his disposal? He invites us to come into his presence. Now, this access that we have to God will result in, he says, it will cause us to stand and to rejoice in hope of the glory of God. That there will be strength, that there will be rejoicing, and there will be hope. That that's what happens when you come before the Lord. He says, come unto me, all ye that are weary. And then he says, I will renew your strength. So you come in weary, but you leave out standing. You come in kneeling, but you walk away in strength. Because the resource of strength is at his disposal to give away. You come in heavy and you walk out rejoicing. You come in burdened and you leave with peace. And he gives you hope of the glory of God. His awesome power at work in your life. This access that we have and yet we take such little advantage of it. So we have peace with God. We have access to God. And then the third thing that Paul tells us that we have in this justification through faith, is that we have a new perspective on trials and difficulty. A new perspective on trials and difficulty. Verse 3, he says, And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also. Wait, whoa, what did you just say? We glory in tribulations also. No, 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 Paul, say that again. I, I don't think I heard you right. We glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given to us. How many of you have discovered that the Christian life is not free of trials and tribulation? I hope that when you came to Christ, you were not told that coming to Christ, your whole life is going to be perfect and grand and that you're never again going to experience any trial, suffering, or difficulty. In Psalm 34, verse 19, David said, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. 2 Timothy 2.12 says that if we suffer with him, that we shall also reign with him. And there's an innumerable multitude of scripture that talks about suffering within the Christian life. And many of us, in fact, all of us have realized that that's true. The Christian life is laden with trials and difficulties. But because of this new relationship that we have with God, because of the peace that's been made and the reconciliation that's been obtained through the blood of Jesus Christ, it allows us to have a new perspective towards trials and trouble within our lives. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12, Jesus said, Blessed are they that are persecuted for righteousness' sake. He said, Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and speak all manner of evil against you for my sake. Rejoice, he said, and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Did he just say, happy are those that suffer? That doesn't make sense. Those two words don't belong in the same sentence. That emotion doesn't belong with that experience. Those things don't go together. Rejoicing and suffering? James chapter 1, verse 2 says, Count it all joy, my brethren, when you fall into diverse temptations. That means trials and tribulations. Wait, did he just say count it all joy 
when I fall into diverse trials and tribulations. No, 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 no. Those things don't belong together. Joy, tribulation. Well, why am I being told that I can have joy and rejoicing in the midst of trouble? Why is Paul saying here that we glory in tribulations? Why? The answer is in verse 3. He says, because knowing that tribulation worketh patience. And maybe you have, if you have a New King James or an NIV, perhaps it uses the word produces. It has the word produces there. That's the key word. Circle that word, underline it, highlight it until you can't see it anymore. You know, just, what, what's the point? The point is this, is that the trials, the tribulations that you're going through as a Christian, as a child of God, are producing something in your life. They're not for nothing. It's not just happenstance. It's not just negative circumstance that you're going through, but it's producing something. It's working something out in your life that's going to be for your benefit, that's going to be for your favor, that's going to cause you to be better off in the end that you've gone through those things than if you hadn't. See, the world can never have that perspective on trials and tribulations. Because they don't know God. They don't know why those things are happening to them. There's absolutely no hope in the things that they go through. But God declares conclusively in your life and in mine that the trials and the difficulties that we go through are producing something within us. And therefore, we can have the perspective of rejoicing when we go through various trials and tribulations. So what is it producing? What's being produced in my life? Because these trials are kind of heavy and I'm not sure if the cost is equal or greater to the reward. What am I going to get out of this suffering, these tribulations that I'm going through? Well, three things, Paul says, and we're wrapping it up. Don't get nervous. Three things. He says, patience, experience, and hope. Patience, experience, and hope. First of all, says patience. He says that tribulation worketh patience. As a man, and I am a man, When something breaks, I want it fixed now because that's the way men are. When something's wrong, we want to fix it. When there's a rift, we want to cover it. You know, when something's broken, you know, we, you know, I I got in the car, I got in the van the other day and I, I, Georgia was driving, I'm riding. But the first thing, as soon as she puts the key in the thing and turns the thing on, the first thing that I see from across the car is that the check engine light's on. I see that I'm a man. Now I asked George, I say, when did that go on? She goes, oh, you mean the little light with the picture of a helicopter on it? It's got, all it is is a picture of an engine. And it, I was like, yes, the picture of a helicopter. You know, when did the helicopter come on? You know, and she says, oh, I don't know. You know, sometime yesterday or something like that. I'm like, well, wh- you know, tell me these things. You know, I want it because why? Because I want to fix it. I'm a man. I want the thing taken care of. I just don't want any problems. You know, this kind of a thing. Well, try to deal with your trials and tribulations before God that way. See how good that works out for you. I remember as a new Christian, you know, here I am, I'm saved, I'm born again, things are going along, and then wham, you know, you get hit with something. And all of a sudden, it's like, oh, where's God? What happened? I was saved, everything was going good, and now I'm not saved anymore, he's not with me. And I remember I went to my pastor, and I'm a new Christian, a couple months old in the Lord, and, and he was there at the church, and he was installing carpet in the new sound room. And so he was underneath the table with all the, you know, equipment on it. And and I just have his back and he's kicking the thing, you know, pushing the carpet into the tax strip. And I'm pacing back and forth. I don't know what's going on. I don't know what happened to God. Where's God in my life now? And why am I going through this thing? I'm depressed. I'm sitting on the You know, I'm going off on all this stuff. And and he's just there kicking carpet, kicking carpet. And finally I said, and don't you care? And I remember he rolled out from underneath that table and he sat back on his heels and he looked up at me and he goes, brother. You're right on schedule. And then he went right back under the table and he kept on kicking the carpet. And I said, what? Right on, that's all you're going to say? You know, don't you realize that the whole world is coming down on me? But there was nothing left to say. So I said, okay, I'm right on schedule. And I walk out, you know, and I leave the thing right on schedule, right on schedule. You know, and, okay, well, he didn't seem to care that much, you know. Well, guess what happened? I got through it. I got through that time. You know, it kind of all went away, all the things. And I remember thinking to myself, wow, I am so glad that I'm done with that part of my Christian experience. Wow, that wasn't so bad. And then, wham, you know, the next one hits you, (laughs) you know, and you're all going again. But listen, the only thing that you can do when you're in any kind of trial, no matter what it is, is wait for it to go away. You can't fix it. You can't stop it. You can't address it. You can't help it. You can't speed things along. You just have to wait and it produces something. 
patience. You'll hear the whisper of the still small voice in your ear saying, are you going to walk away from me? Well, I want to, you know, but I can't, you know, it's like when Jesus said, are you guys going to go away too? And they said, where would we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. I almost hear it in Peter's voice saying, we would, but we don't know where else to go. You have the words of eternal life, you know. You have to wait. And it produces patience. And then that patience produces something in turn also, he says, experience. And you might have it in your thing, character. And the two things really go hand in hand. Why? Because after you get through the first and second trial, you get through the third and fourth difficulty, you get through the fifth and sixth bout with depression, you get through the seventh and eighth you know, battle with family, you begin to see that, hey, wait a minute, you know what? God's still with me. I'm getting through these things. It's happening. He's working. And you start to steady out. You start to realize you don't panic so much when the trial comes anymore. Okay, well, here's another one. You know, here's another wave that's just going to billow over my head and, and it'll go away and it'll pass and, and God will still be there. And you go through a number of these and after a while you're just kicking carpet, kicking carpet, and you just can roll back on your knees and say you're right on schedule. Why? Because you realize that this is just a normal part of Christian life and that God will get you through it. See? So it produces patience because you have to wait and then it, it produces experience and character because now there's stability and Christ likeness being birthed in you as you just endure these things and you don't let it freak you out so much and kill your joy to that great depth and you're beginning to become mature in the things of the faith in the things of God and that ultimately it leads to the third thing that Paul says which is hope you realize he really is changing me he really is working in my life. He really is growing me up. And he really is revealing himself to me through these trials and these tribulations. And you get to the point where the treasure that you have and what you're getting from him so far outweighs the weight of the struggle and the trial that you welcome the trial with joy and gladness. Paul said to the Philippians in chapter 3 verse 7, he says, whatever things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered, suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung that I may win Christ. The more and more I suffer, the more and more Jesus Christ is revealed to me and the less and less anything else means to me but to have Jesus Christ revealed. We glory in tribulation because it produces something within our lives. Ultimately, hope. First Peter chapter 5, verse 10. This is one of my favorite verses. I used to pray this every... I still pray this all the time. First Peter 5, 10. It says, But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, will make you perfect, established, strengthened, and settled. But that's what he's working within our lives. But it comes through the path of suffering. That's where those things are learned, where those things are grown and obtained. Tribulation produces hope. Do you know what hope is? Hope, remember this, it's the absolute expectation of coming good. Write that in your Bible. A-E-O-C-G. The absolute expectation of coming good. Because you walk with God for a while, you realize He's got nothing but good in store for me. I know the thoughts that I think towards you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope, or to bring you to an expected end. It produces hope. Now, what does hope do? Verse 5, and we're closing. He says, And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given to us. Once there's hope that's alive in my heart, once there is an absolute expectation of coming good that's real and not contrived, then what the result of that is that I will never be ashamed. Why? Don't forget, Jesus told Peter, he said, Peter, before the cock crows, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter said, Lord, even though I would die with you, I will never deny you. And Jesus pulled Peter aside and he said, Peter, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. He's desired you. He's got a target right on. The red laser dot is right on your forehead right now, and you don't even know it. He said, but I've prayed for you that your faith fail not. 
And he says, and when you're converted, strengthen your brethren. And Peter vehemently said, no, Lord, I will not deny you. But sure enough, Peter denied Christ three times that night. And the third time, after the third time, the cock crew and Jesus and Peter's eyes met from across the distance. And it says that Peter went out and he wept bitterly. He was ashamed. Jesus said, I prayed for you that your faith fail not. Let me ask you, did Peter's faith fail? Was Jesus' prayer ineffective? Did God not answer Jesus' prayer? No, Peter's faith didn't fail. Peter's hope failed. His hope for what he supposed Christ was going to do didn't come to pass the way he expected, and his hope failed. And therefore, he sinned. He did something that was worthy of shame. He denied Christ three times because his hope failed. Almost every shameful act done by a Christian, whether it's in this building or anywhere else in the world, is usually the result of failed hope. The hope fails. You lose hope in the fact that God's doing something, and so you do something that's shameful. One time I heard the story of Satan's garage sale. Satan had this garage sale, and he was selling all of his instruments and all of his tools. And so people were coming, and they were looking at all these beautiful instruments that Satan used to destroy people. Alcohol, ooh, you know, and drug abuse, ooh, and prostitutes, oh, you know, and everybody's looking at all of Satan's weapons. And then someone observed that way over in the back corner, there was this grungy, dusty, old, little, didn't look like much thing. And, and they said, hey, what's that back there in the corner? And the devil said, oh, never mind that. Uh, don't pay any attention. That's not for sale. Well, what is it? I mean, it's, it's nothing. And it's nothing. It looks like this grungy old thing. Who would be interested in that? And so finally he goes back and he picks it up and he says, oh, he says, this is my most treasured and most powerful instrument that I have. What? Did that, that grungy old thing? Well, what is that that you hold in your hand? And he looked at him and he said, it's discouragement. If I can use this tool on one of God's people, if I can pry the door with this instrument of discouragement, if I can get them discouraged, then it will allow me to use any one of these other instruments on that person. If they give in to this, I can get them to do anything I want them to do. Failed hope. Hope fails. God, you're not working in my life. Satan comes to you. He says, you're not going to make it to heaven. You're not going to ultimately get there. You might as well sin. He says, you're never going to find that Christian spouse that you've been waiting on. You might as well just marry the heathen down at the end of the block. You know, it'll work out. Don't worry about it. you're, You're chemically unbalanced. Just take it. Just take it. Take it, drink it, smoke it. God's never going to put that right in your life, you know. Hope fails. You sin, and it leaves you feeling ashamed. But hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts through the Spirit. God's powerful. We have a new perspective on trials and tribulation because of the power of the blood. Because we've been justified by faith. It's working. It's producing something within our lives. The musicians can come as we close. But there's someone here tonight. And you need to know that you have peace with God. That you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior. And that he no longer is at enmity with you. God no longer is at war with you. He doesn't have any bones to pick. He sees you as though you were his son, Jesus Christ. That's the way that God looks at you if you're in him. It's through the lens of the blood of Jesus. And you're not a child of wrath. You're a child of God. You have peace with God. There's some of you here tonight that have quit praying. You've left off that open door of access that you have before God. You've abandoned the resources And more important, the purposes of God that he has for your life. You're no longer fellowshipping with him. You've lost touch with him. Don't forget that the busiest, most powerful being in the universe is waiting for you to call out to him. Jeremiah 33, verse 3, he says, Call unto me, and I will answer thee and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. Call upon the Lord. Renew that line of fellowship that you have with him. And some of you here tonight are in tribulation. You're going through trials. There's hard things going on within your life. Know this. It's not the judgment of God. 
You're not under his wrath. You're not under his judgment. Romans, just look down to verse 8. It says that God commends his love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. So he's not going to put you through wrath if he died to save you from wrath. He's producing something in you. He's working in your life to bring forth strength, stability, and establishment. He's longing, he's working to bless you. So rejoice. He has one hand on the thermometer and he has the other hand on the thermostat. And he's got everything in control within your life. Romans chapter 8, verse 18, Paul says, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. If you're here tonight and you want to pray with someone after the service, the pastors will be down in the front. Just bear a burden, or if you want to receive Christ as your Savior, you just need someone to pray for you, we'll be here. So come, come, let's pray. Father, we just thank you so much for this word, this powerful truth, Lord, that we have access to you, that we have peace with you, that you're producing something within our lives. Father, we pray that you would finish the work that you began in us and help us, Lord, to hold on, that we wouldn't lose hope, Lord, and do something shameful. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.